so it's Women's History Month, and we decided that we would celebrate by highlighting a few of our own history makers. So what we're going to chat about today is some of our favorite Kappas who were profiled in the 2020 anniversary edition of The Key, the special double issue for our sesquicentennial anniversary. So it was 150 years, and it was celebrated 150 Kappas who dare to dream boldly and live fully. So if you didn't get a copy or if you have lost yours um, or you never got around to reading it, you can check out the digital edition. I put the link there up at the top and we also have a few extra hard copies. So if for some reason something happened, feel free to email us at headquarters and we can check your address and make sure that um, if you did not get a hard copy but want one, we can try to, to rustle one up for you. Um, and this magazine, it's brilliant. I love this issue. I love our magazine anyway. Um, and I'm not just saying because it's my job, um, but listening to the group that worked on it, that whole editorial board, some are still there and some have since retired. They worked so hard to find Kappas who represented all of our membership. And that is no small feat when our history is usually written by a small subset of any group. So I loved how wide they cast their net. So editor uh, Kristen Sanjid, who was a cap at Georgia Southern, noted that they didn't want to use this special edition of the magazine to rehash history. So what they decided to do was what they do best. They told our members stories. And there are some good ones. Um, I like that Kristen noted that the issue wasn't a mission accomplished. Instead, it was a starting point and an opportunity to really start a conversation about what our members want to know and want to share. She then toasted to another 150 years of usefulness and prosperity, and she was quoting the wish that was shared by the last two living founders in the introduction of our 1932 history book. So I think that's a good answer to our last question we posed during last month's program. What can we all strive to do to make Kappa and the world better? And I like that. I mean, I think if we're going to work towards anything, usefulness and prosperity are really going to be a great start. So let's begin with someone who is way more useful to uh, way more than useful to womankind. And in true Panhellenic spirit, this was written, this profile was written by my good friend, Dr. Fran Beck. She is the historian for Pi Beta Phi Women's Fraternity. And Fran contributed this piece about Amelia Mimi Himes Walker, who joined Kappa at our Beta Iota chapter at Swarthmore. The chapter is now closed, but their legacy of influential members for sure lives on. Uh, Mimi is, this is Mimi right after she graduated from Swarthmore, and she was serving as the alumni delegate from Beta Iota at the 1902 convention. So she's there on the left. And I think it's fitting that the fraternity president at that convention was Jean Nelson Penfield there on the right. And she, or I'm sorry, the right arrow. And she is from Iota chapter at DePauw. Jean was an early suffragist and founder of the League of Women Voters. And I like to think that she was probably an inspiration for some of Mimi's later work. So an advocate for the right for women to vote, Mimi Walker joined the Cong Congressional Union for Su Women's Suffrage in 1913 and marched in its inaugural suffrage parade. By 1916, she joined the National Women's Party, arguing for a constitutional amendment to give women the right to vote on the federal level. July 15, 1917, Mimi was arrested while protesting in front of the White House. She and her fellow suffragists, known as the Silent Sentinels, used banners to ask Mr. President, how long must women wait for their liberty? Mimi defended the Silent Sentinels, 
saying, President Wilson said in 1915 that he believed in women's suffrage. We are only asking him by our silent appeal of our banners to convert his words into deeds. Mimi was sent to Occoquan Workhouse for 60 days when she refused to pay the $25 fine after her arrest. After the 19th Amendment gave the women the right to vote, Mimi continued her work and she writes, one joins the National Woman's Party because one has a firm belief in equality of rights for human beings. And she wrote that in the December 1944 issue of our magazine. Mimi was rarely seen without her jailed for freedom pin, and it's crafted in the shape of a prison door with a heart-shaped lock. I remember when the museum's committee invited Lee Garvey Hodge to speak at the 2016th convention in San Diego. She did an incredible first-person interpretation of Walker in costume. Julie Mangus and Edie Mayo had helped organize that, and so it was one of the highlights of that convention. Our next uh, profile was written again by Kristen Sangid from Georgia Southern, who we mentioned earlier as the editor of The Key. Kristen wrote that Virginia Gildersleeve, initiated at Beta Gamma Chapter at Barnard, had been called the First Lady of Academia. Barnard opened to women in a plain brownstone on Madison Avenue in New York City in 1889, and Virginia graduated first in her class of 1899, of which she had been class president with a degree in English. She went on to complete a master's degree in 1900 and her PhD in 1908, both from Columbia University. In 1911, Virginia was teaching English at Columbia when she was offered the position as Barnard's Dean. She was reluctant at first to leave the co-educational environment at Columbia to go to Barnard, which was Columbia's College for Women. Columbia's president, Nicholas Butler, convinced the 33-year-old Virginia to take the position, promising her a full professorship. Even though she had been reluctant, at Barnard, Virginia found a purpose and a passion that kept her in the role for 36 years. Barnard faculty Joseph Gerard Brennan recalled, Miss Gildersleeve was Barnard. After her time as Dean, the position title changed to president. When Virginia graduated with a degree in English, teaching was one of the few professions available to women. And in 1900, 88% of Barnard graduates were teachers. Over the course of her career, Virginia sought to advance professional work opportunities for women. Barnard's secretary and assistant to the Dean, Catherine Doty, another capper from Barnard's class of 1901, was appointed by Virginia to run the Barnard College Occupation Bureau. The Bureau provided vocational information to its students and alumni, of which Ms. Doty meticulously maintained addresses and professional information on alumni. Companies, the government and the military called upon Barnard for recommendations of women to fill positions. Besides academia and women's vocation, Virginia had, been, had, had a keen interest in international affairs. In the lead up to World War I, she led Columbia University's Committee on Women's War Work. As World War II approached, she continued that work. She said, it seemed as if Hitler were about, were about to plunge Europe into war and I was profoundly distressed. As an advisor to women graduates, students at Columbia, I felt that we ought to do something about it. I was intensely interested in the problem and the enormous contribution that women might make. So in February 1945, President Franklin D. Roosevelt named Virginia to the U.S. delegation to write the United Nations Charter. She was the only woman delegate at the U.N.'s charter meeting in San Francisco in April 1945, 
and one of only four women to actually sign the UN Charter in June of 1945. The key post-war commission had two directives, one to prevent future wars by creating a security council, and two to promote global human welfare by establishing the United Nations Economic and Social Council. Virginia set to work drafting the structure, powers, and functions of that United Nations Economic and Social Council, which she valued as the body charged with, quote, doing things rather than preventing things from being done. Her work on the charter included words of hope for people around the world. The quote included higher standards of living, full employment, and conditions of economic and social progress and development. So beyond her work, on the United Nations Economic and Social Council, Virginia persuaded her fellow delegates to adopt the following aim for the United Nations. Fundamentally human rights in the dignity and worth of the human person and the equal rights of men and women. The clause had lofty and benevolent aspiration for human welfare and lasting peace. It set a precedent for women's work aligned with goals she promoted doggedly in academia. Now, you know, as archivists and historians, we have to bring up sometimes the uncomfortable things. Dean Gildersleeve is amazing, but not without a hint of controversy. It was under her watch that Barnard's Greek system was dismantled, despite her own affiliation with Kappa Kappa Gamma. I'm told that there were many more details at play, and she was forced to appease both students and benefactors and administration. Um, so it wasn't as if she hated Greek life all of a sudden, but um, like I said, it was under her watch that it was dismantled. <laughs> she definitely was in a tough place. It is also interesting to note that some of the other capitalists who were in New York City and at Barnard in those years. So Gildersleeve initiated in 1896, and then soon after, Mary Kingsbury Simkovich was a Kappa from Phi chapter at Boston. She moved to New York City and founded Greenwich House, which was a non-sectarian settlement house in 1902, and she worked with the Barnard Kappa chapter for some time. Alice Dewar Miller, the suffragist and author, joined the chapter at Barnard a year after Gildersleeve in 1897. Then Mary Harriman Rumsey, the founder of the Junior League, also joined the chapter at Barnard in 1901. And then if we're going to talk about diversity and thought, Juliet Stewart Points, one of the founders of the U.S. Communist Party, joined the chapter at Barnard in 1904. And then there was Louise Comfort and Julia DeForest Tiffany, twin daughters of Louis Comfort Tiffany, joined the chapter at Barnard in 1906. I like to imagine that all the members that year got maybe a stained glass lamp as an initiation gift. Mm -hmm. So moving on from Barnard, up next is one of my other favorites. Um, Katie Mills Giorgio from Gamma Theta at Drake got to write this next profile and I am jealous. Elizabeth Betty Robinson Schwartz from Psy Chapter at Northwestern pulled off one of the greatest comebacks of all time, literally. She was the first American woman to win an Olympic medal in track and field. And a, she was a, or I'm sorry, a track coach at Chicago's Thornton Township High School was riding a train that Betty was running to catch. And she caught the train. And then when back at school, he asked the 16 year old to run 50 yards and her track career was launched. She said in 1984 to an interview to the Los Angeles Times, I had no idea that women even ran then. Three weeks later, Betty ran for her first official race, a regional meet where she finished just behind the 100-meter U.S. record holder. Her second race was at the Chicago Area Olympic Trials, where she equaled the world 100-meter record of 12 seconds. 
At her third meet, the U.S. final trials, she finished second, making the 1928 Olympic team. The 1928 Olympic Games in Amsterdam were the first time women were allowed to compete, compete a controversial decision. Betty took the gold medal in the 100 meter with a time of 12.2 seconds. The Associated Press wrote, bobbed hair flying to the breezes, the Chicago girl sped down the straightaway, flashing a great closing spurt to beat the Canadian favorite, Fanny Rosenfeld, by two feet. Betty is the youngest athlete to win Olympic gold in the 100-meter race. Betty continued running at Northwestern University, where she became its first woman to receive a varsity letter. In 1931, Betty nearly died in a biplane crash. That's the same year that she initiated an Upsilon chapter at Northwestern. After the crash, she was assumed dead and her body was placed in the trunk of a car and taken to Oak Forest Infirmary because her rescuer knew the undertaker. Doctors determined that she was only unconscious but had, severe, had suffered severe head injuries, broken limbs, and would never race again. She missed the 1932 Olympics and was in a wheelchair for six months, and it was another two years before she could walk normally again. However, just three years after the accident, she made a comeback. By 1936, she qualified for the Berlin Olympics as the third leg of the 4x100 relay team that captured a gold medal. Her miraculous recovery and later win at the infamous Nazi Olympics, along with Jesse Owens' incredible wins, only further thwarted Hitler's plan to highlight Aryan supremacy at the games. And I would love to know her thoughts on those games, but we haven't found many interviews that she gave um, about being there at the Berlin Games, specifically um, the controversial nature of the games. She stayed active in Kappa and was even the magazine chairman for a number of years. Fascinating. And talk about an inspiration. Well, I've got some more inspiration for you. This piece was written by Kristen Lefebvre, from Delta Chapter at Indiana, and this place is second only to Kappa in my world. <laughs> I love Disneyland. So if you're one of the over seven, 730 million visitors to Disneyland since it opened on July 17th, 1955, you have experienced the work of Ruth Shellhorn Kuser from the Gamma Mu Chapter at Oregon State. A transfer student, Ruth studied horticulture, engineering, design, and regional planning at Cornell University in the 1930s. After six years of study, she had earned more than enough credits to receive her bachelor's degree, but then the dean deemed women unfit to handle the heavy workload and did not permit her to take her final course. When Ruth's petition was, was ignored, she figured she'd give it another shot the following year. But amid the Great Depression, Ruth's family lacked the money for her to complete her degree. That makes me so mad on her behalf. Ruth returned to her native Los Angeles and opened a landscape design practice. Her big break came during a collaboration with architect Welton Beckett. Ruth's novel use of palm trees, glossy foliage, and lush, lush plantings at Beckett's malls gave customers the feeling of being on vacation. Her work captured the essence of Southern California living. When Walt Disney called Beckett for advice on hiring landscape architects for Disneyland, Beckett advised him to hire Shellhorn and only Shellhorn. Just four months away from opening day, Disneyland was still 60 acres of dirt, a dry river trench, and a handful of unfinished buildings. Disney had established Tomorrowland, Fantasyland, Adventureland, Frontierland, and Main Street USA, but he had no strategy to con connect them coherently. When Disney called Ruth, she told him, I don't do amusement parks. 
Still, she took the meeting where she agreed to design the park's pedestrian plan, including the plantings around Sleeping Beauty Castle and the landscape for the town square, Main Street, and the Plaza Hub. Disney wanted to build a Victorian bandstand in the center of town square. Feeling it would obscure the view of Sleeping Beauty Castle, Ruth suggested a flagpole instead. Disney started construction of the bandstand anyway, but soon realized that Ruth was right. He ordered its demolition and replaced it with a flagpole. From then on, he trusted Ruth completely. When, when Disney toured the progress each Saturday, she was the only woman who walked alongside him. Everyone else on the creative team was a man. Ruth's previous projects had been installed in exact detail, in exacting detail, but at Disneyland, plants and landscape grades were eyeballed into place instead of being staked out, according to approved designs. On March 27th, Ruth wrote in her diary, I'm really scared about Disneyland. So much I don't know and trying to design and not being sure I'm on the right track. Soon Ruth was making regular trips to Anaheim to supervise. And I want to quickly point out that Disney gave the order to demolish the bandstand, but they never actually did. Someone moved it and it's now in another park in California. So sorry, Disney, your ill-fated bandstand is still around. Um, the men on the site called her Mother Hell Shellhorn, and uh, they were chastising her as a stickler for details. In the last 10 days of construction, Ruth kneeled in the dirt to plant seedlings herself. After her work at Disneyland, the Los Angeles Times named Ruth the Woman of the Year in 1955. In 1960, she received the Alumni Achievement Award from Kappa Kappa Gamma and attended the 1960 convention at the Hotel Del Coronado. And I would have paid to be there. So Ruth is there on the right. And then to her left is I Love Lucy creator Madeline Pugh Davis from Delta Chapter at Indiana. And side note, to um, help honor Madeline's work and the award yeah, she yeah. was receiving, Lucille Ball attended that convention as well. Yeah, exactly. That was a pretty cool convention. <laughs> years later, with a portfolio spanning nearly 60 years and 400 projects, it was discovered that Ruth had enough credits to satisfy graduation requirements at Cornell in agriculture and landscape architecture. So in 2005, Cornell presented two diplomas to Ruth. She wrote that those diplomas, which she hung on the wall of her studio, were the most dear to her heart. I think that is a great place to end for today with a Kappa who's partly responsible for the happiest place on earth. I totally agree. <laughs> we should have probably done this at Disneyland, but that's okay. <laughs> for research purposes. That's what we usually do. Mm -hmm. Speaking of next time, for April, we are talking about Kappa Curiosities. So, oh, Denise, this is your part. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so if you've ever heard Kylie or Dr. Oz talk about these, you'll recognize some. But we've got lots of things that you'll probably haven't seen yet. So don't forget to register and please let us know future topics that you'd be interested in. We are grateful that you joined us today, and we do have a little bit of time if you have questions or if anyone was at the 1960 convention. <laughs> right. 